This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. What does it mean to actually write a dissertation? And as importantly, what does it mean to become a professional in this field? I can't be the only person sitting at home going, oh, for crying out loud, how am I going to do this? Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we branch out from our science background and learn all about the life of a humanities PhD student. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 171. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Josh, is like deja vu all over again. <laughs> I feel like you and I have talked about everything we're going to talk about today once already. This episode is month, months in the making, or at least one month. Yeah, so into every life, a little rain must fall. Last time we recorded this uh, episode of you and I talking, you listened back to my audio and it was totally messed up and I have no idea why. So here we are to talk about it again. I'm looking forward to the, the second round. Always great to relive it, Dan. Uh, although I think as a silver lining to that cloud, um, I think that was a great episode we repeated last time. So I hope everyone enjoyed learning about motivated abilities and maybe did a little self-reflection. So important and never a bad time to start that process. Uh, Josh, what do you have for us for beer today? Well, Dan, I was lucky enough to come down and visit you in North Carolina. I guess it was <laughs> over a month ago now. You just can't quit me, Josh. <laughs> That's right. But while I was there, I uh, went by our favorite beer store. And, you know, it's a little harder for us to coordinate having the same beers to drink uh, now that we're recording from different locations. But stocked up on enough beer to get us through at least the next six months of recording. Um, so gave you half and I brought half back with me to Maryland. And so the one we are going to sample today is the... Spencer Winter Warmer Amber Lager. And I thought this was interesting, Dan. So what I tried to do, all these beers, uh, something our listeners can look forward to hopefully over the next number of episodes, is these were all beer that jumped out at me with something interesting. And so the thing about this one, this is actually an American Trappist beer. Dan, I know we've had some Trappist beers made by monks uh, on the show before, but Spencer beer is the first and only certified Trappist beer made in the United States, brewed by the monks of St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. Yeah, I was pretty surprised to see Trappist and the United States in the same sentence, but I, I checked out their website for Spencer Brewery, and they say Trappist communities observe the council of the rule of St. Benedict that stresses the importance of pray and work. So monks are encouraged to be self-supportive and offer charitable assistance to others, by producing and selling goods to the public. And I guess this particular monastery produced jellies and jams that they sold under the label Trappist Preserves, but they looked for other ways to, to raise money, things that they could make and sell. And I guess one of the brothers got interested in beer brewing. They, they did some tours around Belgium and places where other Trappist communities live, and this product was born. So... The one you have for us today, that the winter warmer amber lager, I really expected, I expected Belgian flavors, and that's not exactly what it is. Yeah, this definitely, and if you look at the color too, this definitely is solidly an amber. 
for sure. It has that flavor profile, the color. It says this is brewed with honey and spices. I feel like on the back end, I definitely taste a little bit of those spices coming through. But this is good. I think whatever spice flavor is added in there elevates that sort of bland, kind of -of run-of-the-mill amber up just enough to make this kind of interesting. I like it. Yeah, I dig it. And, uh, you know, the the money you spent on this, Josh, is hopefully going to support (laughs) charitable activities around Spencer, Massachusetts. You can feel doubly good as it goes down. I do feel good. I wish I could have found some of those jellies and jams. Maybe if I do, we could start having a... A jelly uh, tasting. We could call it the jam session at the beginning of the show. I don't think that idea is Kaz legs, Josh. No? Okay. Okay. Well, if you'd like to send us any beer or jam, (laughs) we would love to try it on this show. All right, Josh. Well, we will enjoy this. I want to take this moment to thank Promega. Their Promega Student Resource Center offers a collection of resources on molecular biology techniques, as well as resources on wellness and career development during graduate school. They have video libraries, blog articles, technical guides, and everything is designed to help students succeed in research, career, and life. Just visit promega.com slash hello student. Also, Dan, we wanted to say a special thank you to two new Patreon patrons. So special thanks to Philip and Matea, who have joined our growing uh, Patreon community um, and our Slack channel. Yep, we will talk to you on the other side. And thanks again. All right, Dan, let's get on with our topic of the week. All right, Dan, we have increasingly heard from listeners who are graduate students in programs that are outside of the sciences, and I know there are some key differences in pursuing a humanities PhD versus a science PhD, but I always thought it would be important and interesting for us to try to learn more about that. So I was fortunate enough recently to cross paths with Alexandra McDonald and We had some conversations about careers in academia and academic administration, but I quickly realized that she'd be a great person to talk to about just that, the life of a humanities PhD. And what struck me by Alexandra, and she goes by Allie, is besides her research interests in history, she also has been working toward making the graduate school process better for humanities grad students. And as you know, Dan, anyone doing that, wherever they are, is someone who is a kindred spirit with us and someone we want to talk to. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you got the time to catch up with her, Josh. Uh, let's take a listen to the interview. My name is Allie McDonald, and I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate at William & Mary. And I'm also currently a dissertation fellow at Winterthur Museum in Delaware, which is fantastic. I am primarily a historian of material culture, so I'm really interested in the things that people use to make sense of life and that sort of impede and shape and all these sort of wonderful things to sort of help people make sense of the world around them. For my dissertation, what I'm really interested in is looking at the sort of the long 18th century, which is a way of saying I don't want to be, I want to look at everything, I'm greedy. Um, <laughs> but looking at the sort of the long 18th century in the British Atlantic world and looking at objects like textiles um, and like texts to think about the ways in which objects helped people understand their place in time and shape how they think about time um, or sort of push back against changing conceptions of time. Because the 18th century is this moment when there are so many changes in mechanical timekeeping that sort of 
you know, scholars kind of argue lead to the 19th century capitalist notion of time and all those kinds of things. But I'm really interested in, well, what did it look like on on a, a daily practice? What did it look like to be someone who's creating textiles? How do you think about your labor and different conceptions of time on a way that is perhaps less mechanical, less sort of technologically determinist? So I'm really interested in thinking about personal perceptions of time in the long 18th century and thinking about that via the medium of material objects. That is extremely fascinating and not a question I would have ever thought of. That is really cool. Um, if I can ask, you know, what kind of, what are your sources of data? So like when you're doing research on perception of time and the, during that time period through textiles, cause I'm used to, you know, and I'm sure much of our audience, we're like science researchers. We go in the lab and we move volumes of liquid around and <laughs> collect data that way. Uh, but what, what are your sources of data when you're trying to understand the answers to these questions? Well, so I, I'm trying to think sort of holistically about what my data might look like. It does include written, written word. So I look at diaries. I look at letters. I've been spending a lot of time looking at dye books. So recipes for the creation for, for dyeing textiles and dyeing threads, because I'm really interested in sort of, I guess, an embodied understanding of time. I'm currently working with a textile that um, I'm actually arguing the date on the textile that stitch in confuses our understanding of its place in time rather than helps us, which is sort of a, hopefully hmm. a novel way of thinking about it. Um, but I'm essentially using Excel to create a stitch map of every single stitch. So I'm counting every single stitch in the embroidery. You're kidding. And Yeah, and so because there's been changes in the dyes over time, so dye fastness is dependent on a number of different factors. And in this particular uh, embroidery, different pieces of the embroidery, the, the, the dye in the yarn, in this case woolen yarn, has changed in different ways over time. And what happens, I'm arguing, is that that actually surfaces the labor and the time that the embroiderer spent with the piece. And what I'm hoping to do is, so I'm going to map it all out. Every single stitch will get its own square. Each color of thread has its own number. And then I'm going to create different sheets that I'll layer on top that will tell us, I'm hoping, about different chunks of time this person engaged with this piece. And I'm working with a friend of mine who's a mathematician and we're thinking about, is there a way to quantify the stitcher's labor, but also to quantify sort of my labor and my engagement with this piece? And sort of, and I guess, hopefully, hopefully mathematically, um, account for the mistakes that I'm making as I go through it. So it's sort of a blending of our historical approaches, material culture approaches, and then thinking about the sort of mathematic quantification of stitchery to think about the labor this woman spent in creating this piece. So that's, I guess, kind of one example of some of my data. That that is fascinating, and I think you're you're challenging some assumptions that that maybe I had of the work of a humanities graduate student. So there really is a physical element to some of the research you're doing. It's not just you're in the stacks in the library, if people still do that, <laughs> uh, pouring over yeah. texts and old texts and literature, but there's really a physical element to part of your, your work. Yeah. Well, I think that that comes from my approach to the, to the past. I mean, I like to approach the past through material objects. So it's really important for me to think about, objects as evidence themselves. And in some case, that means putting them into conversation with texts and maps and buildings and the landscape. 
Um, but it also means taking the object itself seriously as evidence that, you know, I, I tend to argue is material sort of manifestations of cognitive process. And if we think about it in that way, can we, how do we read objects as this sort of tangible evidence of thought, I suppose? I feel like I could probably spend the next 30 minutes <laughs> asking you questions <laughs> about the specifics of your research, because this is uh, completely fascinating. Uh, but I want to shift gears a little bit, because one of the primary reasons I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to you today is Dan and I, our background we're both biomedical scientists by training. And so we spent our PhD days uh, working in the biomedical research lab. We talk a lot on this show about science PhD, uh, the science PhD training process um, and, and what that is like. But I know through the years, we've had an increasing number of, of grad students that we hear from who are in um, graduate programs and PhD programs really beyond the biomedical sciences, certainly, but even beyond the hard sciences and, and into the humanities, which is not something that we know a whole lot about. So one mm -hmm. thing I was hoping that you could do for us today is really educate us a little bit on, on what is the prototypical humanities PhD process like? Because I think it'd be really fascinating for us to really contrast what, what we know well and what we're used to uh, with the PhD process of a science PhD. What are the similarities and the key differences? Um, so maybe you could talk about that a little bit. What are, if you can even define it, what would the, uh, <laughs> what would the typical humanities PhD process be like? Everything from how you think about programs to join, how you find an advisor, mm -hmm. do you take classes, how long does it take, you know, all, all of, if you could just summarize all of that <laughs> in the all next that, few minutes. All those big questions. That, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think in some ways, I, I, talking to a few of my friends in the sciences, picking a program is not necessarily dissimilar. So for me, when I was going through picking a program, really what I'm looking for is a good fit. And how you define fit, I think, does matter. Sorry, it's, it's somewhat individualized. For me, finding a good fit meant that I found an advisor who was sort of thought in ways that sort of provoked me to think in different ways. So I made sure to before, I think before and during my application process, anyone I thought I might be working with, I at that time set up what were, I think, Skype calls and just sort of chatted with them about things I was thinking about, about things of theirs that I had read that I thought was interesting or, you know, talks I'd heard them give and just kind of bounce ideas off each other about ways that my research could could go um, and ways that they might sort of be interested and engaged in my research. And then I was looking for programs that had, I think it's really important in the humanities, and I'm not sure about sciences, but I think in the humanities, I think you really want to have a number of people or like a handful of people, two or three people who you think can help you push your work along. So I was applying to programs that had people either in the same department, two or three people, or in, for me, across art history and history programs that I thought I could ask different parts of my research questions to, and they would have different interesting things to say. Yeah, I think that gets towards a specific question that I had when you were doing your research on advisors and programs. What, what's sort of the priority typically for uh, a humanities student who's interested in a PhD program, is it really thinking about the individual advisors and targeting them? Or to what degree does the 
the university or the program that that advisor is in, uh, to what kind of importance does that carry versus just really it's all about finding the right person, the right advisor, and wherever they are, you know, that's fine. I'll go there to that program. Like the scientists, it's important to find a program that is a strong program at a strong university. Um, personally, I think it's also really important to make sure that you're not just picking a program based on the, the name of the university. That's obviously important, particularly in the job market we currently have. But I had a sort of winding trajectory to get to graduate school. And so for me, it was important that I was in a strong program at a strong university, but that I had an advisor who understood that I was coming back to school after having worked a few years in, you know, an academic admin, and that I really wanted my advisor to be somebody who I could bounce ideas off of and not just meet with twice a year. Um, and so for me, I, I mean, I definitely prioritized having an advisor who is in, who is really engaged and who's happy to be really engaged. And I've been extremely lucky. Nick is a fantastic advisor in, in looking at drafts, looking at conference papers, bouncing ideas off each other. Because for me, that was a really important part of my intellectual growth. Um, and I think talking to my friends who are currently in the process of applying to a PhD, certainly for them, school is important, program is important, but they're also really, really prioritizing, is my advisor going to be available? Are they going to be able to read drafts? Are they going to be able to engage with me in a way that's not, that sort of feels personalized, I suppose, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in in many ways, that is similar to advice that we give science PhD students. We've talked a lot. We've talked a lot on this show in the past about things that science PhD students should think about when they are choosing advisors. And and really, much of what you're mentioning is identical. It's what kind of um, access am I going to have to this person? Are they going to actually be helpful in my my growth as a as a researcher, as a student? Are they just going to be available to actually do the things I need them to do to help me get through the program. So um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so once you get into the program, you've chosen your advisor, you've chosen a, a school and a program. What's the timeline like? What's the general structure of, of humanities PhD programs? Are there, is there coursework or are you really jumping right into research? Um, sort of spell out what the, the, what your years look like when you're in a humanities PhD program. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing to think about is that uh, North America for the humanities looks different than Britain. In Britain, you do just jump right in. Uh, but in North America, you typically will do between one and two and a half years of coursework. Oftentimes, if not always, that coursework includes some research component for at least some of your classes. Now, is that is that research with your dissertation advisor or you really kind of put that part on pause until you finished your coursework? I think that sort of depends. So I, I mean, we, for us at William & Mary, I do, or we do, research in coursework that is advised primarily by the person teaching that course. But because I have the advisor that I do, I would typically send him maybe just one draft of a paper during a semester just to get his sort of general thoughts. Um, and not for intensive engagement from Nick, but more just, what do you think? What about this? How about this? Um, so it's more about the, the prof teaching the class, but you can certainly reach out to your advisor and sort of get their input on what you're working and the ideas you're playing with. Got it. So you know who your advisor is going to be uh, when you come in, even during that coursework period? Typically, although you can change. It's not, I think, even uncommon. I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I have enough friends who have come in thinking, you know, I'm probably going to work with this person 
But as their research has evolved during the coursework period, because the coursework for us, or for me at least, was a time to explore ideas that I thought might be cool for a dissertation. And some of my friends, that took them exactly where they were going to go. You know, I came in working on Civil War, I'm going to keep working on it, and away I go. Other people, like myself, I've kind of meandered slightly, and luckily I've got an advisor who can meander with me, but other people have said, you know, I really think, great advisor, but I want to become a religious historian, and they're more of a gender historian, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift over this way. And that seems to be totally, sort of totally fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great to hear. And actually, that challenges another misconception that I had about humanities PhD programs, in that you were really locked in, that you chose an advisor up front, and you were kind of stuck with that advisor. And, and I know that's been a real shift in in the science PhD world, and particularly in biomedical science over the years, where now most of our biomedical PhD programs baked into the structure of the programs, you actually have to rotate through with three different advisors before you ultimately pick one. So I'm actually encouraged to hear in the humanities world that there often can exist this opportunity once you get there and you kind of get to know not just some of the other faculty who are there, but really even, I think sometimes even when you start a graduate program, you're still self-discovering a little bit about what your own needs and interests are. So I'm encouraged to hear that there can be some latitude, even for humanities PhD students, to switch advisors early on if they decide that's a good thing for them to do. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is a personal experience speaking, but I think the best dissertations are the ones that maybe meandered in ways we hadn't expected them to. And partly that's meandering through the coursework and trying ideas that, you know, when I'm in the classroom with my students, I always say, I, I want you to take an intellectual leap. You know, don't don't tell me what you think I want to hear. Take an intellectual leap. It could be wrong. That's totally fine. Just go try an idea, try a new theory, try a new object base you haven't tried before, and to try. And I think that coursework is the place you can do that. And that may lead you to a different advisor. Um, and I think that that can be, depending on, you know, personality and all those kinds of things, that can be a really good thing. All right. Well, that, sound, that sounds good. And I'm encouraged to hear that that can be an option. So, so now tell me a little bit about, you know, you finish the coursework after the first year or two, depending on your specific program. And now you're ready to actually jump into, you know, the really deep research part of your dissertation. What does that look like in the humanities? Like what's the typical, we'll call it like the middle to last part? You know, how long does that take? What's the typical life of a humanities PhD student once the the thesis research part starts in earnest? Totally. So after we've done our comprehensive exams, um, we write a dissertation proposal that we sort of defend, which is more of a discussion with your advisor and sort of your advisory committee. Um, and then you jump into research. And typically for sort of a history PhD, a material culture history PhD, That requires you going to different archives or museums or public history sites and working on site with their collection. And oftentimes those are, you you, you should get access to their collections through external fellowships that you apply for. And you'll do things like what I'm currently doing. So I'm currently at Winterthur. I've been here six months, which has been fantastic. And while I'm here, I'm doing everything from working very closely with the textile curator, Laura Johnson, and we spend time talking in front of objects, standing in front of objects, talking about them, looking at them, thinking about them, and then going sort of, in my case, to the object files. What's the provenance of an object? How did it enter the collection? And spending time in the archives. What kind of things can I pull from diaries or from cookbooks or from dye books? And I think what 
is maybe different. I don't know about the sciences, but depending on the questions you want to ask and how you want to answer them, you can go, some people have, you know, one of my good friends will be going to sort of three key archives. They sort of hold everything that she'll need. They're all sort of geographically centered on one sort of city or, or near that city. My project, I will be sort of up and down the Eastern seaboard and I'll be in England at, at different archives. And that can be both a good and a bad thing. It can take, and they can take longer or shorter depending on how many archives you need to visit and how much time you want to spend with sort of each archive. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I'm like picturing you as this sort of world traveler archaeologist going to all <laughs> <laughs> jetting around the world looking at all these these artifacts and archives and <laughs> pondering them deeply. It actually you're making it sound very uh very romanticized and uh exciting. One thing you mentioned that that I thought was interesting was that you actually you spent some time um, talking with different individuals, like the the curators um, at, at these different museums and of these collections. I would say an, another possible misconception that I have about humanities PhDs is when you're doing your thesis work that it can be that you're very independent and maybe even isolated. That on your own, like at the museum or in the library, day in, day out for months and then years, uh, versus a science PhD where maybe, you know, you have to go into a laboratory and you're kind of next to all these people, other people in the lab every day, uh, kind of working in community, um, that a humanities PhD student is more isolated. Um, has that been your experience? Would you say that's true or not so much? I mean, I think it certainly can be. So, I was thinking about that this morning because I have been at Winterthur for six months. And so I've been able to build a really strong community here, but I'm leaving on Wednesday. And all <laughs> of my other fellowships are anywhere from two weeks to a month long. And I will be away from home. I will be living in an Airbnb or on some friend's mom's couch. Um, <laughs> and I think that sort of does, it, it's hard to feel grounded when you are on your research and you're in your research phase because you're physically bouncing around. In some ways, you're kind of intellectually bouncing around, trying ideas, trying source bases. I mean, you're meeting new curators, you're meeting new archivists, you're meeting new other PhD candidates who are who are there researching with you. And I think it's interesting, right? Like one of the one of the pros of a humanities PhD is that you do get to go explore these different places. But it's also a con because you lose the sense of community that you had when you were based at the university during your coursework and your comps phase. You're not, you're not, you know, your advisor's not down the hall. They're across the country or they're across the world or, or they're across the ocean, right? Um, so it's kind of an interesting pro-con, I guess, dichotomy or whatever that's <laughs> right of the right word for that is. It can be pretty isolating when you're off trying to gather all your data. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious there's been a lot of a movement and discussion in the the science PhD world on programs and universities having more transparency about the time to degree and the career outcomes of students who graduate from their program. What's been your experience in the humanities graduate school world? You know, is there a, a lot of information out there about typical time to degrees, like what's sort of your thought process on, or so what's sort of your understanding of, of of you and other humanities graduate students about how long does, does a dissertation typically take for these programs? Does it vary widely? Is it fairly consistent or, or what's the status of that? 
Yeah. So I was looking at the stats this morning to have exact stats for you, and I can't, I couldn't find them. I know they're somewhere on the AHA, the um, Historical Association. Um, typically, it takes about seven years to get a humanities PhD, um, and I think skewing to the upper end of those seven years. And is that including the is that including the coursework part? That is, yeah. Okay. So that's another question when you're considering schools, right? How much are they? How much of those seven years are you going to be funded for? I we're very lucky. We're funded for six years, and there are a number of opportunities on campus for finishing fellowships for our seventh year because I think. Humanities PhDs become very difficult to finish when you lose funding and you're trying to juggle you know, either a full-time job or you know two part-time jobs and research and writing. So I, I do think there is more transparency about just how long it takes to get a humanities PhD. And I think there's more transparency about sort of the importance of resources. We've been talking a lot about healthcare and how important that is to have as part of a PhD program. We've been talking a lot about sort of a living wage and how important that is to have as part of a PhD program. And, you know, schools schools ability to respond to those sort of shared understandings of things that we need to support students varies based on any number of factors. Yeah, Ali, you're starting to talk a little bit about some some general graduate student wellness and quality of life issues. And I know something else about you is that you serve on the graduate student advisory board. And through some initial conversations we had, I know you have an interest in just the general well-being and advocacy for humanities PhD students. So Mm -hmm. why don't you talk a little bit about some of your thoughts or some of the either work you've been doing or what you see as the big issues facing humanities graduate programs and how they can be better for the students who are in them. Yeah, absolutely. So coming back, before I came back to graduate school, I worked in academic admin and I'm just sort of fascinated in how universities function and why they make the choices that they do and why they make things, make choices that may seem in, you know, sort of counterintuitive to graduate students at certain times. And, and really interested in sort of what graduate students can do to engage with these conversations. And so one of the things that I've been, been doing, and I've been very lucky to do, is I have been engaged in a sort of creating a reorientation program. And so one of the things I think that, that is a stumbling block for humanities students, and it's, there is data to support this beyond sort of my, you know, my informal poll of my friends, is that when we reach you know, the post-comps phase. Like, you're excited, coursework makes sense, comps make sense, they're awful, but they make sense. And then you get to the dissertation phase and you think, okay, I have no idea how to write a book. I've never written a book before. I have a general sense of, yeah, I need, you know, X number of chapters, X number of pages, X number of archives, X kind of sources. But practically, on a day-by-day basis, what does it mean to actually write a dissertation? And, And I think, you know, as importantly... What does it mean to become a professional in this field? Because I think part of the reason we're doing a PhD is hopefully to become a professional. Whether that's in academia or museums or industry, professionalization is part of what we're doing here. And so these are questions that I think we all kind of, you know, bounce around our heads. And then it's like, okay, but how do I, what do I do to put that into action? How do I actually do X thing to get X outcome? And so what I'm really interested in is how do we support students who have questions sort of structurally about their dissertation, but also about how do I reach out to a collection and ask if I can use their archives? Um, How do I join a professional network? How do I talk to my advisor about the fact that, you know, maybe I don't want to be a prof and I in fact want to go become a consultant. 
those kinds of questions, what kind of resources can we can we use or can we create to support students in the the things we assume PhD students know, but I think many of us don't know. And in fact, most most don't, uh, unless you just happen to come from an environment or a family <laughs> where you were exposed to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which there are other access issues um, to that. But everything you're saying is totally resonating with me of there are these these certain rules of the game that definitely exist that will help you be successful in graduate school, but Mm -hmm. nobody historically ever tells you what they are. No. And I think in many ways I have fallen backwards into so many of the things that have worked out for me. Like I, I didn't have a, you know, straightforward trajectory to graduate school. I wouldn't even say that my trajectory in graduate school has been straightforward. And so many of the things that I have, have experienced is because I was curious and I thought, oh, this isn't working for me at all. How can I make this work for me? Or, ugh, this makes absolutely no sense to me, but surely somebody has thought about this. And I thought, well, you know, I can't be the only person sitting at home going, oh, for crying out loud, how am I going to do this? There's got to be some way to come together in community and talk about together, oh my God, how are we all going to do this? And so I think it's really important and particularly really important during, you know, it was always important, but I think it's heightened by the fact that we are even more sort of siloed at home with everything going on with the pandemic. Um, and, you know, there's been great access issues made by putting documents and objects online, but that adds let, yet another level of sort of isolation. And mm-hmm. how do we how do we come together and talk about things that are worrying us? And And, you know, how do we come together and talk about the cons of grad school we never saw coming? Because I think those are the ones that really kind of like, they're like the gut punch when you think, I'm a good student. Why can't I do this? Well, I never saw that coming. And so I want to provide a space where we can talk about those moments of intellectual fragility, maybe is a good way of talking about it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to mention it. And I think probably in no small way, that's one reason Dan and I've had this podcast keep going for Mm -hmm. as long as it has, because you start to realize these these insecurities that you have as an academic, as a graduate student, you really have this imposter phenomenon where you think, all right, I must be the only one who doesn't know what's going on here. But if you just, if you just peel back the surface a little bit and actually talk to some people, you realize, oh, wait, you know what? Most of us are having the same challenges and together we can figure this out or someone (laughs) together, we have most of the answers that we're all seeking. Absolutely. So, so you mentioned this reorientation program and I think, this idea of of providing a lot of these really just really specific guidelines for how to do some of these core aspects of your your PhD and professional process. Have you actually seen any of these ideas actually translate into uh, programming or into actual um, action on your campus or in your program? And have, if so, have there been any tangible benefits that you've observed? Absolutely. So Sarah Glosson, who is our sort of fearless leader at the at the ANS Director of Graduate Studies, um, so she's working really hard to get everything up and off the ground. And so we haven't implemented the program yet, um, but I have informally been forcing all of my friends to try things out to see if they work. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, it's been interesting. We've been having discussions amongst my friend group, and again, a very informal sort of getting together once a month to talk about 
how, how are these techniques working for us? And that's been really informative. One, as a graduate student to see that, you know, things that work for me are working in different ways for my friends or are not working for my friends. And as someone who's interested in supporting graduate students, it was important to remember that really what I want to do and what I think maybe we should be trying, aiming to do, is not to give hard and fast rules or worksheets that if you follow point A, B, C, and D, you will be successful, but rather to give students the tools to know where to go to ask the questions that they're having and to have enough structure that they don't feel like they're floating alone, but not that they feel like they have to stick to this particular, you know, nine step program or they won't be successful because mm-hmm. I think that adds as much stress as having no support. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> we're still in the process in, uh, institutionally of putting it into practice for all graduate students, but at my informal, you know, chatting with my friend level so far, it's been working great. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And, and I agree with you. There's not always, there, there's not always a one size fits all path into grad school or through grad school or after grad school. Um, one analogy that, that Dan and I have, have used recently is, you know, in the course of a PhD program, you enter and you're swimming, like you're swimming in the ocean. And at the very beginning during your coursework and pre-quals, and as you're getting close to your qualifying exams, there are these lighted buoys that are there that are kind of, you know, you can meander a little bit to the left or right, but you've kind of, you see the path you need to go. But once you pass your qualifying exam and you're just into the research phase, the buoys are gone and it's just open mm-hmm. ocean ahead of you and you can very easily get lost and just have no idea. Am I moving closer to where I need to go or am I not? And, you know, it sounds yeah. like what you're advocating for is, is just a, some guideposts along the way just to, to help, guide people through through their path and and also just not not lose motivation along the way. Absolutely. Which I think is one of the things that is potential for I mean all PhD students can lose motivation for any variety of reasons. <laughs> and many do at some point. <laughs> exactly. I mean I think you know everyone's been saying by the time you get to the writing of the second draft, you're gonna hate what you've been working on because you just have been, you know, steeped in it for so long. But I think one of the things about being isolated when you go for research is that if you're feeling isolated and you're feeling alone and you're feeling confused, it's hard sometimes to think, well, today's the day to get off the couch and get going because it feels like, you know, you don't know how to reach out and say, Hey, I've always been a good student. I'm still a good student. I'm just kind of lost. I don't know. Should I open door A, B or C? Mm -hmm. And just having a tool to say one, I'm kind of lost. That's totally cool. And two, who should I talk to about this? Where can I go on my campus to ask the questions about, you know, I've done these four things. They're not really working. What do you think? And that can be your advisor, but there are questions that your advisor is not as equipped to answer. And some of them can be, I don't know how to format this thing. And your advisor may not know how to format, you know. Um, So I think it's about building a network of people on campus who are there to support graduate students in the variety of needs that, that we have during our time as students. Yeah, I think that's great advice for, for anyone out there who's a graduate student, independent of what type of program you're in. And, and I guess along those lines, sort of a last thing, do you have any other just general advice? So most of the people listening to this show are either thinking about grad school, but most are in graduate programs right now of all different types. So, you know, based on all the things you've thought about and your own experiences and just your own thoughts in general about the challenges of, of PhD programs, what advice would you give to a grad student who's listening right now, who's maybe feeling demotivated or feeling lost or, 
or just feeling overwhelmed, uh, what would you say to them? Well, the thing that I've been telling myself recently as someone who's feeling slightly overwhelmed and a little bit lost is I think there's a tendency to think that every decision is the make or break decision. If I do this and not that, it will all be good or bad. And that really hasn't been my experience. And I think taking some of the pressure off every single minutia of grad school being so deeply important to our success or our failure, our hypothetical success or our hypothetical failure, gives you space to be intellectually curious. Because if everything has to be toward a specific, defined, restricted goal, you may miss really interesting intellectual projects or really interesting discussions you could have had or really interesting rabbit holes you could have fallen down. And so for me, I think, you know, trying to think about being open to new ideas, to new opportunities, to things that I never saw coming, but when they pop up, look really cool, and I'm just curious about them. Um, I found that's helpful for staying motivated, and I found that that really helps grow my project because I get to talk to new people who spark new ideas. So I guess if you can, which I am, you know, <laughs> do as I do, not as I, or do as I say, not as I do, <laughs> try to take some of the pressure off every single decision feeling like it's the one it is the one, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, Allie, this has been really fantastic. I know I have learned a ton um, over the last little bit that we've, we've chatted together. Uh, I really appreciate your time uh, coming on here and, and talking to us a little bit about your experiences. And um, I guess last, anything else you, you want to say, anything you want to plug, where can people find you, uh, anything else you want to leave us with? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter. Uh, now it would be good to know what the handles for those of those are. I think my, my Twitter, <laughs> my Twitter is, uh, Ali McMack, uh, A-L-I-M-I-C-M-A-C. And then my Instagram is just my name, Alexandra McDonald. Um, and would love to hear from you. And would anyone who wants to chat about any of this stuff, um, you can find me on the William and Mary student page. And I'm always happy to chat about humanity stuff, about PhD stuff in general, about struggles that you might be having. Um, and I'm starting a humanities, in this case, William and Mary, but happy to make it everybody, um, once a month check-in, just to check in. How you doing? What are you doing? What's going well? What's not going well? Um, and if anyone in the podcast universe wants to jump in on that, we would be more than happy to have any and everybody who's interested in, in that. That sounds fantastic, Allie. Well, thanks so much for your time today, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. All right, Dan, that was my interview with Allie, and I've got to say that making Excel spreadsheets with distances of every stitch in an elaborate tapestry really doesn't sound all that different from <laughs> my day-to-day -day as a biomedical PhD pipetting small volumes of liquid over and over again. Or how many times did you count cells on a <laughs> in a microscope? <laughs> I mean, it is it is part and parcel of the same thing. Yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated, Josh. We have heard bits and pieces from people in the humanities and PhD programs that are maybe outside of the science world that is our background. And I've got to say the certain things sound very familiar and some things sound so much more challenging to me. For for me the first thing that struck me was you know as a as a biomedical PhD you and I were in a lab and everybody was working roughly toward the same goal. You had your own project but it was all part of the, the same grant. And so it all tried to feed into one central question. Um, and every day that you came in, you saw other people working. And it just sounds like from Allie's work, 
she has carved off a piece, a, a question she's trying to answer that she might be the only person in the world that is solving that particular problem or answering those questions. And so how does she judge whether she's making progress? That feels really difficult to me. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, we've talked about on the show, Dan, that, you know, as any type of grad student, as a science graduate student, it can be easy to get lost, to lose motivation, to kind of stall out. But, you know, inherent, at least in the type of experience that you and I had working in a wet laboratory environment, you know, you can't do that work at home or anywhere really outside of that lab. So every day you kind of have to drag yourself, even when you're not motivated, you have to drag yourself out of the house, you know, into the lab with these same people day in and day out. And that can present its own challenges, of course. But, you know, you can't just sort of fade away without someone noticing. I think you can't get lost to that degree. Whereas I could see with this, you know, if you're either just writing or researching off campus somewhere or even not in the same city or country, as your advisor or other students uh, working under that advisor, it could be really easy to to feel isolated. Yeah. I think, you know, if I didn't go into lab, my cells would die, right? So <laughs> I have to be there every few days at least. And I, obviously I was there much more than that. Um, but yeah, she could, she could go off to count stitches and weeks or months could pass. And who's going to inquire to make sure that she's on track? Um, on the flip side of that, Josh, is I just think it's so compelling uh, the depth to which she's able to answer some of these questions. Like, it's something that she must be very passionate about. And listening to her, it made me think, like, how many other PhDs would I like to get? Like, there are so many questions in the world that would be really cool to answer in the humanities, in history, in the sciences. Uh, I don't know. It just inspired me to think about all of these other studies that are going on that I probably won't hear about unless they make it into a documentary or something. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Dan. And as we've been doing this show and talked to a lot of different people doing a lot of different types of research, uh, whether it's been sort of field work and organismal biology, going out observing nature, um, or what Ali's talking about, observing in detail, you know, these these historical works. You know, there is something really tangible, I think, about going out and observing something that exists in the world to try to learn about what happened before us, you know, and that's kind of different fundamentally in some ways than a lot of what we would do in the biomedical research lab where we would, for us to try to understand how the world works, we would try to model it and create this, you know, try to create this, make this recreation in a Petri dish or in a test tube to try to understand versus actually going out into the world and observing. Um, it's kind of, I guess, a different different sides of the same coin, but, but I think that would be really fascinating. You know what I would love, Josh, is to be a fly on the wall when she's standing in the museum archives discussing one-on-one with maybe the museum curator about some particular object. Like, that would be a cool podcast. It's just two experts going deep on some, what, what would, to the outside, feel like a random object or item, but it would be so cool to hear them pontificate and come up with ideas. I thought that was a really compelling piece. Yeah, it feels, you know, I hope I'm not over-romanticizing it, but it feels... Probably are. <laughs> we probably are like, oh, this is be so amazing. It's like Indiana Jones. I know, I'm imagining this uh, sort of old, ornate uh, museum archive room and these two experts, you know, clearly one is stroking their chin, you know, and they're pontificating about these historical works. I can say, Dan, I, I remember... Over the past several years in, in my previous job, one of the things that I would start doing with students 
is I would take them to the art museum on our campus. And one of the art historians who, who worked at the museum would select a couple of, of works that were, were hanging in the museum. And, and we were all scientists. We were all science students. And what we would do is we would stand around this work of art and we would just be with it for almost like sort of in a way of what, what Allie was describing. We would just sit there and observe for 30 minutes, maybe with one piece. Wow. And, and, you know, I think my first thought, if you told me, it was probably like, five minutes and it felt like 30. <laughs> well, we actually you've never been it. still that long in your life. <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, I think if someone told me and, and I might've actually approached what Allie said, I might've thought about what Allie said I might have thought about it differently, too, if I hadn't had this experience. But I think if you told me, all right, we're going to go look at this piece of art, one piece of art for 30 minutes, I would have thought like, oh, that sounds boring. Like, what? <laughs> you know, we're going to kind of get it all in like two minutes. And then, you know, if you've been to the art museum and you're like flitting from one thing to the next and you exactly. see it all in like two hours. But, but what you find is as a group looking at a piece of art or, or really anything and observing, it's unbelievable how much richer that process is with other people, how much you pull out of it, how much you see because of what other people see that you completely would have missed. And and so I think that really taught me a lot about about science and the importance of observation in even biomedical science that we were doing. That one, it's really important to do research with other people because certainly we all have different perspectives and backgrounds and things we see and trying to do it alone, you're going to miss a whole lot. So I don't know. I feel like there was a lesson there in just slowing down, paying attention and observing um, that I learned from spending time with experts in these works of art. Yeah. And I guess the corollary for uh, some of the other researchers out there is maybe lab meeting or seminar where it can be easy to blow those things off or to tune out because it's not exactly in your field. But I think what you're saying, Josh, is tune back in, pay attention, because even if it's not in your field, it is that the friction between people and ideas that really makes the science work better. And uh, Ali's got that in in a humanities context, but we also have it in a, in a you know wet lab context as well. Absolutely. You know, Dan, the last thing, I wanted to circle back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, and that has to do with some of this, the potential challenges of doing a humanities PhD. And I think that underscores the importance of the other things that, that Allie was, was talking to me about, and that's some of the intentional work she's been doing to build community and to bring humanities graduate students at her institution together to kind of stave off those possibilities of, of getting lost or, or maybe not knowing how to progress. And I really liked that. And a lot of what she was describing are things we've tried to do with this, this podcast, Dan. And that is, you know, very few of us know how to do everything. Actually, no one knows how to do everything. But especially going into a PhD program, you're not born knowing how to write a dissertation or write a book chapter or how to connect with someone at a museum who's looking through the archives or whatever it is that you do. But collectively, there probably is someone who does have that information who can help you. And the more we try to collectively seek out how to progress through our program together, uh, the better the experience is going to be for all of us. So I thought that was really great to hear that she's working to do that. And I would love to know if there are other listeners out there in humanities PhD programs who may be on their own. The students are coming together to 
provide this professional development for each other, or even if some humanities programs are out there recognizing the importance of this and maybe providing this career professional development for their own trainees. Yeah, two things about that, Josh. I love the peer focus of it. You know, your advisor may know how to do all those things that you listed, write book chapters and reach out to archives and whatever, but they may not have the time or the the mentorship skill to tell you all of that, to be part of your process in all of those things. Maybe they have too many students, maybe they have too many things on their plate. And I think reaching out to peers, especially other students who have maybe gone past where you are, is a great thing because those people are motivated to help you. They are in the same boat you're in. And the second thing, Josh, was I remember when we were students, there were very few uh, university funded and led programs to help graduate students in the sciences. And we did it as students. We had student organizations. We had student invited speakers. Um, When we wanted to learn about tech transfer or we wanted to learn about industry, we did it. And now those programs exist that are funded by the departments, by the university, by the program. And I wonder if that same process is happening or has happened or can happen in the humanities. Yeah, I hope so. I'd be interested in hearing more about that. You know, my Led by is, Allie. Led by Allie is starting it. You know, it sounds like the humanities might be just a few years behind where some of, at least some of the sciences have come with this, you know, because, you know, Allie was talking about this sort of student grassroots-led career and professional development support, which is what we were doing when we were graduate students. Now I know, and you know, the sciences, there are different uh, structures in place, at least in the United States. There's funding agencies like the NIH that have now recognized the importance of graduate students having this professional development outside or alongside their research. And so in some cases, there are graduate student training grants that are actually requiring programs to do this stuff if they want to keep their funding. That is a huge difference from what it was when we were there, right? It was when we were there, it was like, well, here's some money. Make sure your grad students are in the lab all the time. (laughs) We don't want them to waste time doing other stuff. Now, the funding agencies themselves are saying, well, you have to let your students do this. And we've talked about that on the show. So my hope is that this is starting to expand beyond the biomedical sciences, but into the other sciences and into the humanities as well, because really it's not a science-specific thing that graduate students want to think about their next steps and how they're going to leverage this degree into a rewarding career and how to do that. So I'm hopeful that this this spreads. Well, and then next steps, Josh, is we'll end the standardized testing to get into humanities <laughs> PhD programs. And, and as soon as you establish the five-year PhD for biomedical students, we will translate that over to a fixed-term PhD for humanities. I'm sure they'll look forward to that. A guy can dream. That's true. All right, well, I hope that uh, other humanities students who listen to the podcast will write in to us. You can contact us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the Trappist beer money, and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. Yeah, Dan, it would be so great to hear from some other folks doing different types of PhDs. I know Allie had one experience, and we had experiences, but it's always fascinating to me to hear the different things people study and the different ways programs work, so... Yeah, certainly. Let us know if there's something unique your program does. All right, Josh. Well, we will see you next time. We've got a a nice stack of beers in the fridge waiting for our next episode. And fingers crossed that my recording worked out this time. (laughs) 
We will find out soon enough. (laughs) See you later, Dan. See you next time. Bye.